Why is Easter such good news? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by the Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dombozik. Brian, today we are jumping out of our zigzag throughout the New Testament, and we're backing up into the Gospels because we are talking about Easter, because Easter is coming up this week. Yeah, and I can't believe you don't know why it's good news. I'm really disappointed in, in you. Well, you know, I mean, this is why I need this conversation. Apparently, well, we'll, we'll we'll get you <laughs> we'll get you straight. That's right. That's right. All right. So uh, today we are looking at uh, John chapter twenty, verses eleven yeah. through eighteen, and um, this is one of the one of the many significant passages that you may hear preached even this this coming Sunday. Um, in your in your local church, it's one that you've undoubtedly heard on some Sunday in the past. It is a hallmark Easter chapter because it is talking. It is one of the very first, in fact, arguably the first encounter that someone has with the resurrected yep. Christ. So, how about you set up a little bit of context for us, though, Brian? Yeah, we have to back up a little bit to understand because uh, what we're going to be looking at, John 20, starting in verse 11, is not the first thing that we encounter on Resurrection Sunday morning. So we got to back yeah. up a little bit. So let me back up to Friday, actually. In John 19, 38 through 42, we read, of course, that after Jesus died on the cross, he is taken uh, and, and buried in a tomb in late afternoon or very early evening. Um and because the Sabbath, of course, the Jewish Sabbath began, uh, I believe at sundown on Friday, um, and work would have to cease. So the burial was just before that. And it seems that the preparations of the body were abbreviated because they didn't have time to finish it. Mm -hmm. So in that day, you would take the body, you would, you would wrap it uh, in wrappings after first putting on some spices and so forth, some aromatics to keep honestly to keep the smell down yeah um and you know that culture they were not buried in the ground they would have been in a cave um this one they rolled a stone in front but that wasn't always the norm sometimes they were just open mm -hmm. so you think about it that you know it's just not really good to be walking around smelling this so that's why they would kind of to, to cover up the smell and so there was a process of doing this they did it partly but it seems again that they didn't have time to finish it so they kind of stopped halfway and that takes us into Friday night through Saturday. Nothing's recorded in Scripture on the Sabbath. Uh, just kind of a, a quiet time from the storytelling perspective. Mm -hmm. And then John 20 picks up on Sunday morning. So the Sabbath has ended. It is early Sunday morning. And John 20 verses 1 through 10 is the first account where Mary Magdalene and other women are with her. John doesn't mention it, but the other parallel accounts mention that. They go to the tomb first thing because they want to finish preparing the body properly. And this is when they get there, they realize the stone has been rolled away, where's Jesus and so forth. Mm -hmm. They discover he's not there, so they, they leave to report to the disciples what had happened. And in John 20, 1 through 10, one of my favorite parts of this account is where we read of Peter and John running to the tomb, John beating him in the foot race, 
realizing he's not there. And then they go to report back what they found. So it's a lot of back and forth. Yeah. Well, after they leave, Mary returns. So she had been there. She had left. She is now back and she's there by herself. And that's where this account picks up. Mary has returned to this tomb knowing the body's not there, but still not understanding what had happened. Yeah. Let's do something that we don't always get to do on on these particular episodes where we're talking about a uh, very specific passage of scripture. And let's actually read the thing uh, because it is thankfully short enough that we can do that um, and not have it take 40 minutes. So here is John chapter 20 verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, he said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, so rabbi. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go get go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. All right, Brian. So we're going to get into answering that question that we led off this episode with, with why is Easter such good news? And through the next several questions that we're going to answer. But the short version is Easter's good news because Jesus is alive. Yes, it is. See, I'm surprised you didn't know that to begin with. Well, you know, I wanted a layup question for you. And I know that you have trouble on Thursday afternoons when we record these. I do. So, Hey, by the way, I'm impressed with your mad Aramaic speaking skills. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's fast in confidence, right? So (laughs) there you go. All right. Let's talk about some questions. (laughs) All right. Um, The first question that I see when when I'm looking at this uh, account is back in 11 with Mary crying. Why was she crying? Um, and again, it's likely because the body had, had disappeared or was gone. We have to remember uh, Mary is processing what had happened. We, we look at this with hindsight. We know, again, I'm, you know, we're kind of giving you jests. You know what's, yeah. you know why Easter's special and so hey, forth. Hey, it's hey. a layup question. We read this and we know what's going to happen. We know because we're familiar with it. Mary in that moment did not know. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's it's not hard for us to imagine, had we been there too, we would have been bothered. We would have been confused. And so in verses 13 and 15, we read that she clearly believes somebody moved the body. Mm-hmm. Now, whether somebody stole the body or whether a gardener um, who was taking care of the gardens decided to move the body in a different place or something, she, she doesn't know, she doesn't say, but that's her assumption because dead people don't get up and walk. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality of the resurrection still had not occurred to her. Again, be generous with her. Mm-hmm. She's learning. She's growing. And I think when you imagine the, the events of the last few days, especially, of watching what Jesus had gone through, and here is Mary just loving him 
and watching the one she loved who was arrested and betrayed by a friend and who was beaten and then and then died such a horrible death of course you know seeing all of her friends scattering and so forth just imagine what she'd been through um, emotions were rubbed raw i'm sure and so she is just in this moment i think it's just collapsing down around her and you just this despair this gloom um and and all you know this was salt in the wound potentially she had come to they couldn't even finish wrapping the body respecting the body enough to finish preparations and now they'd come back to finish that and now the body's gone it's the salt in the wound of her heart so i i see her crying there and and i i see this as a sobbing you know she is probably just at the end of things um, and, and understandably so. Yeah. You know, another, another question that, that we should be asking, um, and I'm going to ask it after I make just a quick observation. That is a, that is a fun thing because the question is, is why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? But there's a little detail in, um, in John's description of what Mary saw in verse 12. That's just really interesting. And, um, honestly, the first, most of the time when I read this, or most of the times I've read this, I've missed it, which is, so if you look at verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And what's interesting about this is that um, it is, this, this is actually just a really ni- nice visual callback to the mercy seat on, mm. on the Ark of the Covenant, because the, the lid for this thing, it had, uh, it was flat surface um you know obviously very ornate because it's all decked out in gold but um but it um it on the ed ends of this of this flat surface you had these two these two angels these two cherubim that um their angels were that were facing each other and their wings were coming together and um you know and touching and creating this this cover basically for the glory of god and so just this this visual that that these two do beings that she knew were angels were there um it's just an it's just a neat little i i told you <laughs> uh kind of thing going on in in John's gospel um and shows his very uh very strong understanding and connection to the old testament which plays into so much else that he writes later especially revelation Back to the question at hand, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? And so there are a few options here. Um, and I like options. Options are good. And so we're going to, you know, so we're going to play, uh, play a game here, Brian. (laughs) And we're going to say, okay, here are the three options. And okay. 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 And then you get to tell me which one is least likely and which is most likely. Okay. Okay. So option number one is Jesus' appearance had changed. That's option number one. Okay. Option number two, Jesus' appearance was veiled to her. Okay. Option number three, Jesus' appearance was obscured by the rising sun. Which of these do you think it would be? Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in my thinking, I'm gonna rule out the first one. Okay, tell me why. Changed. Well, because we also have other accounts in Scripture where we clearly see he's recognized mm. um, and immediately. Yep. So 
if his appearance had changed, well, I would have to say this. If it was, it was temporary because then it changed back to the normal appearance Mm -hmm. for others to recognize him. Yeah. Um, and not to say it wasn't altered in any way, shape or form, but again, he was recognizable at other times. So yeah. uh, I'd lean toward Jesus' appearance was veiled or his appearance is obscured. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could make an argument for either. Yeah. Uh, if I had to guess, if you pushed me and said, this is a game show, you got to make a guess. Um, I would probably go with the obscured one. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Okay, that, well, that's that's interesting. Um, so let's let's dig into these other two options. We've already ruled out number one. Okay. Um, I'm going to go to the one that you've picked first, and then okay. I'm going to go to the one that's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you're only going to talk about two options today, then, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. So well, we've already talked about the one and all we need to yeah. say about it because yeah, but the the one I picked and the one that's right is the same one. So you're only going to talk about no, one more. no, that's not right. No, I'm going right, to talk go about on, the one that I'm go. picking, and that one's all right, right. All right. So, so. Uh, the possibility of Jesus' appearance being obscured by the by the rising sun. I mean, it's fair. It, this is a fair uh, approach to it. I I disagree um, based on other things that we see in scripture, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, but I, I think it's a valid approach. So um, it was early in the morning. The sun was rising. Um, it's entirely possible that Jesus was standing between Mary and the sun. And so he was backlit and we all know what happens when people are backlit. We've all seen yeah. it on, if we've been on a zoom meeting ever and someone has <laughs> a window behind them, you know what that's like. Um, and so it is possible that she, that um, if she had been looking in a dark tomb uh, that her vision would have been off looking into the bright morning. Um, there's, there's all of these kinds of, these kind of things. I think that, that some kind of obscuring of either his appearance because of light or because of, um, her eyes readjusting to daylight could well could is, is a valid thing. However, I lean toward that second one of Jesus' appearance being veiled to her. Okay. Um, and the reason that, that, I, that I do is, is because we see that hap- happen elsewhere in Scripture as well on the same day. Jesus, um, we see it specifically in Luke 24 with the Emmaus disciples, uh, where Jesus comes strolling up to them and, um, and is like, hey, guys, what you talking about? And... Um, and as they're arguing about whether or not Jesus was actually the Messiah and what to do with these rumors that Jesus was alive and here comes Jesus, but they sure don't recognize him. Not until after he leads them through the greatest Bible study in the entire world. Um, and then, um, see gospel projects, only the second greatest, the, the, that's right. <laughs> the one Jesus did is the best. We but, do not deny that. Nope. Um, so anyway, uh, um, and then it isn't until after he's done that and then he's having dinner with them, gives thanks, breaks the bread, and then they see him for who he is. And so there's an action on his part to say, hey, it's me. Okay. And as soon I, as they recognize me, he disappears. But, I see that argument. Okay. And I raise you this. Okay. Later that day, when those two disciples from Emmaus return and tell the others what had happened, Jesus appeared in their midst, and it doesn't seem like his identity was veiled from the other disciples. That's certainly true, because he was choosing not to, maybe, at that point. So maybe he was choosing not to veil himself here in 
in the garden, it has nice symmetry. You have not, not veiled, veiled, not veiled, rather than yours, which is veiled, veiled, not. There's not a pattern there. But uh, that's not true because <laughs> yours still has a, yours veiling is obscuring no, too. Yeah, mine would have, so. no, mine would have a natural veiling, an intentional veiling, and then no veiling. But what about, what do you do about, she thought he was the gardener. Yeah, because she just sees the, a man there yeah, but and, she and would, the silhouette she and so forth. his voice. Well, that's, that takes See? me to what caused her to understand. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I would say this. Before we go any further, <laughs> we would not, of course, start First Baptist Church of the Sun Obscuring tomorrow, just as we should not start Second Baptist Church of Jesus' <laughs> appearance being veiled tomorrow. No, we would that, call that community church. <laughs> we would not want to do that because it's it's not that important. There is, I mean, something's true here. Uh, one of us, you, are wrong here, or we might both be wrong, and maybe it's something else. Maybe we're actually both right, or maybe we're both right. Maybe it's both. You know, his obscured, his veiled appearance was obscured by the sun. Yes. <laughs> so Mary had everything going against her, um, but we we don't know. It, it does matter. It's fun to to debate and bicker about some, but it, it, we don't know. Yeah. You have to take that. Um, but there's there's a plausible reason for it. But it does take us in verse 16. You see, again, as, as you're talking about, she thinks he's a gardener. Again, I mm-hmm. think it's because it could just be because of natural lighting. And she's crying. And, and yeah, she may hear his voice a little bit. But, you know, a lot of times people's voices sound similar. Or, mm-hmm. um, and, and so maybe she didn't quite recognize who it was. Or your thing, he has chosen to veil himself, so therefore his voice may be obscured as well. But then in verse 16, we read just simply, Jesus said to her, Mary. Mm -hmm. And then turning around, she said to him, Rabbi, which means... So she recognized something in that changed. Now, what was it? And I think it could merely be her hearing her name. That maybe, you know, think about it, she probably had heard... Jesus say that name before, and it's something, although the other words, maybe it wasn't recognizable, maybe just hearing her name, maybe it was the way he said it. You know, I wish we were able to capture in scripture, um, inclination or the, the tone behind things are said and, and so forth. We don't. And so maybe it's something, maybe the, the tender way he said it or, or, you know, with the compassion or something. Um, that that she picked up on, or again, if it was if you're right, which again is highly doubtful. Uh, but if you're right and Jesus chose to veil Himself, then this is simply where He chose to unveil and reveal through saying the name. So something something happens here where the the the, the epiphany. We know you mentioned the Emmaus disciples. We know it was in the breaking of bread. That that's the moment that. And we do know he had veiled his appearance from them. So that's the moment he chose to reveal himself and they recognize it in that breaking of bread. So it could be something similar here if he did intentionally veil his appearance to Mary. All right. You still haven't, you still haven't convinced me, but... Um, but no, no, some, that's okay. Yeah. But we've got some good... We've had some good discussion about... about these different these different things so far now here's the next one because it seems kind of weird i mean jesus doesn't seem to be have have any problems with um you know physical contact with with people so why is he acting 
why is he acting like you and me with a with a no touching rule um <laughs> here with mary um because she reaches out she hugs him this is understandable and it's not wrong but why is he saying don't cling to me yeah and so there seems to be something else in it that's underneath this it's not that he doesn't want a hug and isn't happy to give and receive one from someone who is a, a dearly loved friend, a dearly loved disciple. So what's going on? Well, there's a couple. There's a couple of things. Um, it could be that Mary was uh, just trying really hard to hold on to Jesus to keep from losing him again. Um, I mean, let's let's talk bone crushing bear hug. Um, <laughs> so it's like, don't cling to me. I can't breathe. Um, <laughs> Now, we can we can spiritualize this and we can try to make it good make it sound really good like she's clinging to Jesus and um yeah, yes and amen. We want to cling to Jesus all day long. But not but we don't want to give him a bone crushing bear hug. Yeah. Um because practically um what's happening here is is it may well have been that there was a lack of trust and understanding in what what had happened and what was going what still had to happen because he's talking about the fact that he has to ascend to the father yeah and so the work is not so everything that he's doing is not done his his he had things to do to go and do that and mary and all of the disciples would have to let jesus go at that point um in terms of his physical presence with them yeah. in space and time. Uh, so it's, so it's, and it's, so it's one of those things that it's like uh, the resurrection is one of these moments where it's like, okay, this is a life changing moment, both in a really good way and in a, and like in the best way possible. But it's also there, there's a, there's a piece that it's like, you'd have to think that, that there would be some grief that's attached to that too, because it's like, this means that life's going to be different now. Yeah. It couldn't be like it had been for the last several years and months and years to that point. So there's another, but there's another option here as well. And the other is, is that Mary had to let go because G, uh, because Jesus and she both had some work to do. Um, this, of course, is not mutually exclusive with number one. In the moment, Mary physically really did have to let Jesus go so that she could go and tell tell the brothers, tell the disciple, the other disciples that Jesus was alive. But Jesus had somewhere to go too, because he had to go find those two those two jokers on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> exactly. And talk they to had them too. To do. Yeah. Yep. And I and honestly, I think both are true. I think yeah. both are right. I think, yeah, I think so as well. Yeah. All right. So one other question we see here as we wrap up this part of it is, is what is significant about Jesus telling Mary what to do? So after Jesus steps out of the sun and Mary recognizes him, he, uh, she clings to him and, and hugs her. And then he says, you got to let go. And then he sends her on a mission to go tell the others. And what is significant about that? I think there are a couple of things. One is, you know, it's not accidental that that Mary, a woman, was the first to witness the resurrected Jesus. You think about this before when Mary and the others had arrived, they just witnessed an empty tomb. When Peter and John arrived, they witnessed an empty tomb. Mary is the first recorded person that we see to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And so she is also the first that we see expressly told to evangelize the resurrected Jesus. 
he had told people to tell others about him in his earthly ministry, of course. But this is the first time we see an instruction for one of Jesus' followers to preach the resurrection or, or proclaim the resurrection, I should say. Um, and what is important here is that women, of course, in that culture were not highly esteemed. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a low view of, of women, not correct to have, uh, but it was yeah, the reality. Not of, biblical. Not biblical. It was the reality of that culture. Uh, women were not seen as credible witnesses, even. And so this, I believe, is a beautiful aspect of the resurrection that does a few things. One, it affirms the reliability of scriptures, because if you're making this story up, you would not choose the first witness to be an unreliable witness in that culture. If you're trying to proclaim in that culture that Jesus is alive, you would have a credible witness in a manufactured story. So it actually affirms to a degree the reliability of scripture. But also it reminds us of God's heart for all people. He had not sent Jesus just for men. He had sent Jesus for men and women. He had not just sent he had not sent Jesus just for the Jews. He had sent Jesus for all Jews and Gentiles. So the rich and the poor, you name it, go down the list. Um, Jesus was given for all of humanity. And it also, of course, reminds us of the power of the resurrection. So you think about Mary, how did we meet her at the beginning of this? She is in tears. She's in despair. She's in disbelief. And the resurrected Jesus moved her from despair and disbelief to joy and proclamation. And again, what made that difference in Mary that day? Why did she come with sorrow and leave with joy? It's because she encountered the resurrected Jesus that made all the difference, which is true of us as well. It's the resurrected Jesus that makes all the difference in our lives. All right. So on thinking about the difference that this makes, um, let's talk about how this passage um, is beneficial to us from a discipleship perspective and specifically what we would do, what what kind of guidance we can offer in working through this with someone else. I'll give the first one and then I'm going to let you tie a bow on okay. it. So uh, I think the first, the first key thing that we should um, really be focusing on and remembering is that the gospel is at the core of what we believe and how we are to live. And so um, that Jesus was raised from the dead um, if we don't have that, we don't have a gospel. There's no gospel without it. There's no hope without it. Because if Jesus is still, if Jesus is still dead, then as, as uh, we are told elsewhere in scripture, we are to be pitied above all other people. Um, because we have a, have a, we believe something that just is fundamentally untrue. Um, but because Jesus has been raised from the dead, this is the foundation and the reason why we have hope, we have joy, we have purpose in the world. They're the, they're the true and lasting reasons that we have these things. And so when we think, so just from a real practical perspective, when we think about joy and, and, and all of these things, a passage like this that we maybe have heard and read many times over, this should never get old. We should never get tired of these resurrection accounts because this is good news. And as, and as gospel people, that's what we're here for. We are here for good news. Yeah. But it also means that we should fight to see its majesty and beauty 
every time that we read it. And so this is this really is where it turns into into that practicality um, in terms of guidance. Is we want we yes, and and I use that word fight very intentionally because um, we are by nature lazy people. So once we once we once we see something, once we get it in quotation marks, we start to fly over it. And it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's why so many people have um, gotten stuck in a mindset where they see the gospel as the start of the Christian life. And then everything else is their own effort, as opposed to seeing the gospel as the Christian life. And this is one of these these places where we have to remind ourselves of that, that um, that this is beautiful. This is good news. And every time we read it, we want God's help in saying, uh, we want God's help to help us see this with fresh eyes every time we see it, to read it as if, as if it were the first time and to rejoice that way as well. Yeah. And I think the other thing uh, that, that we need to keep in mind is, as we are walking through somebody else with this passage is, is kind of what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, that, you know, the, the, the amazing revelation of God's love for all people, and not only the cross and, and the empty tomb, but Jesus' appearance to Mary, as, as we talked about, um, is, is just amazing. And, and that's such an important part of this. And we think about this, and we go an extra step of, of understanding God throughout Scripture, not just here, but throughout Scripture, how many times does He use unconventional means to accomplish His purposes? You know, think about the choosing of the 12. Those, those were not the 12 that you would expect to have been chosen to help lead this movement. And yet God, in his wisdom, those were the 12. You know, you go back, think about Jonah. You would not typically say, all right, he's going to be the best method to, you know, preach repentance to Nineveh. Yet God used him. Um, you know, God leading, intentionally leading the Israelites running from the Egyptians into a, a dead end where they are trapped between the encroaching angry Pharaoh and his army and the Red Sea so that God could part that sea and so they could walk across in dry land. Unconventional means. Over and over again, we see unconventional, the whole gospel. If, if you never heard this story, this true story, and somebody said, here's the problem, sin, you have to deal with sin. How do you get out of this? Who would have thought, I know, God will take on the flesh and he will pay that. Unconventional. So God's, it seems like a preferred, a preferred method is to use unconventional means. And I think we need to find great encouragement in that because very few of us feel like we are the best ones to proclaim the gospel. And those who do, you probably need to be humbled a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's right and fitting that we all say, me? What do I have to offer? Who mm -hmm. am I? And some go even farther, and I think we shouldn't go this far, and say, well, I can't. You know, I, I just don't, I'm not able. Yeah. In a sense, you're not in yourself. But this is the point. God uses unconventional means to accomplish his purposes. He can use you. He wants to use you. And he will use you. Yield to that mm -hmm. and, and, and rejoice in that, that you are here for a purpose 
And that God's plan is to use you to, to not only proclaim verbally, but to demonstrate the gospel to those around you so that others might come to trust in Christ and have eternal life. Unconventional. I, you know, I've, I've often told people, if I'm writing this out, if I'm, if I'm planning it, had God said, Brian, come here, write this out. How do you think this should go? Um, after the resurrection, I would have a bunch of angels come and proclaim the gospel because I think they could do a much better job than we could. Mm-hmm. But that's not God's plan. He wants the people who have received forgiveness, who have received life to proclaim what they've had being given to them. So again, an amazing reality, amazing thing for us to remember. And it should be at once both humbling and both amazingly encouraging of what God wants to do in us and through us. Man, that's a really good note to end on. So let's do that. Um, Yeah. So thanks for chatting today. And thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.